please keep your Bibles open before you in John's Gospel, John chapter 3, and that portion that we read together uh, a little bit earlier. If you were here uh, two weeks ago, you will recall that, that we've started a short series in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you missed the first part of this series on the person of the Holy Spirit, then I would encourage you to get the notes from me or to download the, the sermon off our church website. Because as I mentioned when we started, we cannot really benefit from the teaching on the work of the Holy Spirit if we have not understood who the Holy Spirit really is. Many Christians today get very confused and, and disappointed and, and fall into all kinds of, of theological heresy and, and strange practices when it comes to the, the gifts and the, the fullness of the Holy Spirit and, and the other works of the Holy Spirit because they have not firstly understood what the Bible says about the person of the Holy Spirit. And so please take time, if you missed that, to, to listen to the podcast or to, to read over that last message if you missed it. But this morning we move on in our study to start considering the work of the Holy Spirit, a topic which we will be exploring for the next six or seven weeks together. And I want to start this morning with the passage that we considered two weeks ago, namely John chapter 16 and verse 7, where Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And we saw last time that the only way that the departure of Jesus could be to our advantage is if the the Holy Spirit was firstly a person and secondly for the Holy Spirit to be God. And we explored that in some detail last time. And so this week we are now going to start to consider the advantages of having the Holy Spirit sent into the world. Now the advantages of the, the work of the Holy Spirit as revealed to us in the scripture are many and varied. He is our helper, our comforter, our advocate. We looked at that last time, the parakletos. He is our guide and he teaches us all wisdom. He is the author of all truth and he leads us into all truth. He is our defense and protector against the attacks of the evil one. He gives us strength and power in the inner man to face all that comes our way. He provides us with the peace that surpasses all understanding. He enables us to walk in holiness. He is the source of all joy and contentment in life. And he gives us gifts, supernatural gifts from God, which are intended to be a blessing to the body of Christ in order to build up the kingdom of God on earth. And so in the weeks to come, we're going to be exploring some of these many varied and, and great blessings of the Holy Spirit, advantages which we receive in and through the person of the Holy Spirit. But there is one primary advantage, a, a primary or, or source blessing which supersedes all these other blessings that I've just mentioned, one which is the kind of gateway, as it were, to all of the other blessings of the Holy Spirit. And that is this miracle of the new birth. 
the great blessing of salvation. For without this blessing, without the new birth, without becoming children of the Most High God, we have no access to or any part in the other blessings and advantages of the Holy Spirit. And so the question that I want us to consider this morning is this. What is the role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation? What is the role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation? We know from Ephesians chapter 1 that God the Father chose us in Him before the foundations of the world. We know that in time, in the course of history, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came into this world to live the perfect life that we could never live and then to die the death that we deserve to die so that in Him we might be made righteous before God, made perfectly acceptable to God through faith in Jesus Christ. So what then is the role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation? Well, let's hear exactly what Jesus said about this question, this subject, as we continue, uh, in a sense, as a kind of a launch pad into our text this morning, as we go back to John chapter 16, verse 7, which we looked at last time. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, Jesus said. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So, when Jesus was uh, was seeking to persuade his disciples that it was better for them if, if he went away. It was to their advantage for him to go away so that the Spirit could come. Jesus did not start off by telling them of, of all the wonderful blessings which the Holy Spirit would give to them. That list of blessings that I listed at the beginning of the message. No, his primary argument for the, the advantage of the Holy Spirit coming into the world had to do with salvation when jesus uh, sorry when the spirit comes jesus said he will convict men and women and boys and girls of their sin of their need for salvation of their need to be made righteous before god and of their need to escape the the coming judgment of god which is coming on the world And so that's where we're going to start this morning as we consider together the the well-known account of Jesus and and Nicodemus in John chapter 3 verse 1 to 15 in order to understand the work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. So let's turn to this portion of scripture. If you're not there already, let's keep it open together uh, as we look at John chapter 3. And in the first place this morning, I want us to see our need to be born again. We see this in verse 3 and verse 5 and again in verse 7. And we have before us a very well-known, familiar story of Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night to ask Jesus about his identity. Now there are a few things that we need to take note about Nicodemus in order to fully benefit from this passage. 
Firstly, Nicodemus was a Jew. He was a son of Abraham. He was raised according to the the rules and the regulations of Orthodox Judaism. In other words, he was from the right side of the railway line. Historical evidence suggests that Nicodemus came from one of the most distinguished families in the land of Israel. Truly someone of a great lineage. But secondly, we are told that he was a Pharisee. Now, that means he was part of the religious elite of the land. These guys took God's word very seriously, and they strived to live their lives with impeccable morality. Thirdly, we know uh, from history of both his family and his religious status that he would have been one of the most highly educated people in Jerusalem. He would have studied Greek and Hebrew from a young age, and he would have especially been educated to the highest level in the knowledge of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. Fourthly, we are told that he was a ruler in the land. In other words, he was part of the Sanhedrin, which was the highest legislative body under the Roman Emperor Caesar. And fifthly, Jesus speaks of him in verse 10 as the teacher of Israel. In other words, probably one of the great religious leaders of the time with tremendous influence over many people by means of his teaching authority. Now, why is all of this important? Well, it's important because if there was anyone from a worldly perspective who could possibly hope to to get into heaven by way of earthly means, by way of religious works, Nicodemus was your man. He was a Jew of Jews. He was of noble family bloodline. He was a religious fanatic of the highest order, he was highly educated, he was a great leader and a great teacher. As far as the world was concerned, Nicodemus was at the top of his game, morally, religiously, politically, socially, academically. Nicodemus had it all. And so this is where our familiarity with this story so often lets us down. Because Jesus says to him, to this Nicodemus, three times, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You, Nicodemus, must be born again. Look how clearly Jesus says this in verse 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Again in verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. I want you to notice that not only does Jesus repeat himself three times, which is a way of making us realize that this is a matter of utmost importance, but twice he precedes this statement with truly, truly. This was a way of making it absolutely clear that what was about to follow was of immense, eternal consequence. So Jesus could not have stated himself more clearly, more strongly. Nicodemus, 
Yes, you, Nicodemus, with all your religious upbringing, with all your nobility, with all your education, with all your religious morality, you, Nicodemus, must be born again. And if Nicodemus needs to be born again, how much more is that not true of you or me today? Now, verse 5 is a key text. For here, Jesus explains what he means by being born again. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, what does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit? Let's, let's focus on the water first. There have been many ideas put forward over the course of history, some seemingly quite logical and others quite weird. Some have said that the water refers to our first birth. As humans, we come into this world by means of our mother's amniotic fluid in the womb, and so that's the water. You need to be born of water and the Spirit. Others teach that this water refers to the waters of baptism, and that Jesus is saying that baptism is essential to our salvation. Still others would say that this was referring to various Jewish ceremonial washings that took place in the context of the temple. And I mention these not to confuse you, but to let you know that none of these views hold any water. So we, we must ask ourselves this morning, what would Jesus have expected Nicodemus to, to understand by this? Well, to know what Nicodemus would have understood by this, we need to turn to the Old Testament. These were the scriptures that, that Nicodemus was, was intimately acquainted with. And so we see what connection Jesus is making then to the water and the Spirit. And there are many Old Testament references to water and washing and cleansing with the work of the Holy Spirit. But I think the key text comes to us from Ezekiel chapter 36. So turn with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel 36 and let's read together what Jesus would have expected Nicodemus to, to know and understand when he spoke of water and the Spirit. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God is speaking here to his people. And he says in verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus was actually nothing new at all, but something which had been simply declared in the Old Testament that was necessary for salvation, which is two things. Number one, a cleansing, a spiritual washing, a washing away of the guilt and the uncleanness of our sinfulness. And secondly, for, for this heart of stone to be removed and for a new spiritual heart to be given to us so that the Holy Spirit of God can come to dwell within us. 
And so in John chapter 3 verse 5, Jesus explains that unless a person is, is washed of their sin and their guilt and born again by the Spirit of God, they cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. They cannot be saved. And so although verse 5 is not speaking directly here of believers' baptism, it certainly does speak to our subsequent understanding of baptism, which is a public outward declaration that as we go through the waters of baptism and we are washed outwardly by the waters, that is a sign of what God has done inwardly by the Holy Spirit to wash us and to cleanse us from the guilt of our sin. The new birth then, or being born again, is absolutely fundamental to being a Christian. There is no such thing as a Christian who has not been born again. Can I say that again? There is no such thing, as far as the Bible is concerned, of someone who calls himself a Christian, but who has not been born again. Without the new birth, you are still in your sin. You are still in the guilt and the uncleanness of your sin. You remain under the judgment of God. And you still possess a heart of stone, a heart which is hostile to God, a heart which is in rebellion against God. Because you remain without the Spirit of God. And so I must ask each of you today who are watching, have you been born again? I'm not asking if you grew up in the church or if you teach Sunday school or if you grew up in a Christian home or you've been a member or you study the Bible or, or any of these things. I'm asking you this morning, have you been born again? Nicodemus was all of these things and more. He taught the Bible. He led small groups. He was a leader. But he had not been born again. And Jesus said to him, Nicodemus, even you, you cannot even see the kingdom of God, let alone enter into it, unless you are born again. So if the new birth was essential for Nicodemus, then surely it is essential for each one of us today. In other words, Jesus is making it very clear to Nick and, and to us today. Nothing about your family line, nothing about your upbringing, no matter how good or bad it may be, your social class or, or your religious activity or your morality, your education, your, your status in the society, your positions of leadership. None of these things count for anything in the kingdom of God. In actual fact, the New Testament reveals to us that it is often these things that blind us from seeing our need to enter into the kingdom of God. And so unless we are born again, we have no hope of salvation. I told you last year at some point during our time in Romans of the, the great evangelist of the Great Awakening, a man called George Whitfield. Uh, and it's worth repeating the, the story that half of his sermons, half of Whitfield's sermons were preached on the subject of the necessity of the new birth. And eventually on one, of, uh, on one occasion, someone who was listening to Mr. Whitfield in the crowd said, Mr. Whitfield, 
Why do you preach continuously over and over again on the text, you must be born again? To which George Whitfield replied, I preach so often on the text, you must be born again, because you must be born again. And so that is our first point this morning. You and I must be born again. But in the second place, Jesus wants us to see our inability to save ourselves. We see this in verse 6 and verse 9 to 12. Not only is every one of us on this earth in absolute need of being born again in order to be saved, but we are equally unable to bring about this new birth on our own. Verse 6 says this, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, at this point, some of you might be confused about what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here. And, and this confirms the truth of what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. You see, without the new birth, we cannot even see the kingdom of God. We don't even grasp what it's about. Because these things that we are speaking of this morning are spiritual. And our human mind and our heart of stone is unable to grasp these spiritual truths, these spiritual realities, let alone be able to enter into them. And so you might be feeling like Nicodemus today. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can these things be? That's a... An old-fashioned way of saying, I just don't get it. I don't get what you are saying. And if that's what you feel like this morning, listen carefully to Jesus' response in verse 10. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. In other words, you don't believe. Why? Jesus says, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can, I, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things, if I speak to you about spiritual things? You don't get it, Nicodemus. And so it's clear that although Nicodemus was, was a great scholar of the Old Testament, the largest portion of our Bible, he knew the Scriptures well, yet he was not able to see and understand the spiritual realities of what Jesus was speaking about. And so it is with, with all of us who are humans today. We might come to church, we might hear the gospel preached, we might read the Bible, we might have had all of these ex things explained to us since we were little children, and yet we just don't get it. We just can't see it. Why is that? Why is it that you can spend hours explaining these truths to your teenage children? You can spend hours explaining these things to a friend or a family member, and they just don't get it. Why is that? Because Jesus explains that which is born of the flesh is flesh. It's human. It's natural. It's hardened. It's darkened. 
But that which is born of the Spirit is spiritual. It's supernatural. You cannot understand these spiritual things if you have only been born of the flesh. Now, to explain this inability to grasp these spiritual truths more clearly, let's see how Jesus goes on to talk about this just a few chapters later in John chapter 6. Please turn ahead to John chapter 6 and uh, follow along with me there in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me physically, and yet you do not believe spiritually. See the contrast there? You've seen me physically, but you do not believe in me. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven from the spiritual realm, to do not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered, do not grumble among yourselves. No one, look at that, no one can come to me. No one can get what I'm saying, says Jesus. No one can believe in me. Unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now move down to verse 60. When many of his disciples heard this, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Who can understand it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe. And who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. In these verses, we see two aspects of the call of salvation, the the gospel call. Firstly, we see that there is a, a general call to all people. There's the, what we call the outward call of the gospel, which goes out every time the word of God is preached. Verse 35, I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 40, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who, who looks on the Son and believes in him, should have eternal life. That's the the general outward call of the gospel. 
which Jesus himself then goes on to recognize, will not result in anyone believing. Jesus says something very profound then about our salvation, which is that despite this outward evangelistic call to to all people to believe in him, no one will respond to that call unless God the Father draws him. Verse 44, unless the faith to believe is given as a gift to that individual by God the Father in verse 65. In other words, our salvation is not up to us. For in our natural state of of sinfulness and, and rebellion against God, we cannot respond to the gospel ourselves. Even though we were to see Jesus face to face as the people did. Even if we saw him ascending into heaven. Even though we hear the call of the gospel again and again. And we may understand it intellectually. We may even be able to explain it to other people. Jesus says we will not understand it. We will not see the kingdom of God. We will not enter into the kingdom of heaven unless God himself draws us and grants us salvation. He says in verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. All human morality, all human intellect, all human wisdom cannot get us to grasp these spiritual truths. Now maybe you feel a little bit like the disciples did in verse 60, where we are told that many of them were grumbling. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Who can understand it? Well, fortunately, this is not the only place in the Bible where this truth is explained. So let's look to Paul to see how Paul explained the same truth in, in detail in Romans chapter 8, verse 5. He says, those who live according to the flesh... Set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And he has the crux, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It's impossible. Those who are in the flesh, says Paul, cannot please God. You, however, verse 9, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And then again in 1 Corinthians verse uh, chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They are spiritually hidden from his understanding. So the Bible is abundantly clear that every human being needs to be born again by the Spirit of God. And yet, the ability to accomplish this new birth is totally beyond our desire and our ability 
and actually even beyond our comprehension. Theologians have called this the doctrine of total inability. And you and I know this experientially too. If you've ever tried as a Christian to explain the gospel to someone at school or, or someone in the workplace, and as you are, are telling them these truths, their eyes glaze over in utter confusion or total disinterest, you know the very truth that we are speaking of here this morning. We are totally unable to bring about spiritual life, this spiritual new birth on our own in fact, our natural state is so hostile to God and the reality of our spiritual predicament is so desperate that the truth of our need for salvation is totally hidden from our eyes. These things are foolishness to us because they are spiritual truths understood only by those who are spiritual, which we are not. So the first two points this morning leave us with a real problem, a problem of eternal condemnation. We all need to be born again. That was the first point, And yet none of us is able to accomplish this on our own, let alone even be able to initiate this process of the spiritual new birth. And so if you grasp the first two points this morning, and you are feeling the weight of these truths on you today. You are feeling distressed in your soul over your sinfulness on the one hand and your inability to save yourself on the other. Then what you are feeling is the evidence of my third point this morning, which is the Holy Spirit's activity in our salvation. Turn back to John chapter 3 and let's look at verse 8. Verse 8 holds the key to us understanding the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation, which Jesus explains to Nicodemus by way of an illustration of the wind. John chapter 3 verse 8, The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so this verse reveals three things to us about the Holy Spirit's supernatural activity in our salvation. Number one, His work is sovereign. Number two, His work is irresistible. And number three, His work is effective. Firstly, the work of the Holy Spirit is sovereign Jesus says that the wind blows wherever it wishes. There is no one who can tell the wind where to blow or when to blow or to stop blowing. So too, says Jesus, it is the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the new birth. He does what he pleases. He operates according to the sovereign will of the Father. And he is not determined or deterred by the will of man. Just like it is ridiculous to think that a leaf on the tree can refuse to be blown around by the wind. 
so too it is foolishness to think that a human being can resist the mighty rushing wind of the Spirit of God as He blows spiritual life into our dead hearts. Follow the logic of Jesus. All that the Father gives me will come to me, says Jesus. But no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. And the Father draws those whom he has chosen by the sovereign blowing of the Holy Spirit to bring about the new birth in their hearts. The work of the Holy Spirit is sovereign. Secondly, the work of the Holy Spirit is irresistible. It follows, if the Holy Spirit is sovereign, what does that word mean? It means by implication that he is in control and he does what he pleases. Then it must mean that his work in our lives is ultimately irresistible. Yes, of course, there are aspects of God's grace. There are dimensions to God's movement of the Holy Spirit in us that we can resist and oppose, but there is a work of grace which is irresistible, and that is this work of regeneration, of giving life to our dead souls. And then thirdly, this work of the Holy Spirit in salvation is effective for the Holy Spirit in His sovereignty effectually accomplishes the will of the Father to draw us to Christ so that Christ might grant us eternal life. Jesus says something very important in verse 8 which we must not miss. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Born of the Spirit. Let me ask you this. How much did you have to do with your first birth? Your natural birth. How much input did you have in the process, bringing your mom and dad together, telling them that you think it's now time to be conceived? Of course, that's ridiculous because you did not exist prior to your conception. You had nothing to do with the process whatsoever. Well, similarly, says Jesus, you have nothing to do with your new birth because prior to the Holy Spirit giving you spiritual life, you did not exist spiritually. You were spiritually dead. The Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. Not you. This is not of your doing. It is the sovereign, irresistible, effectual work of the Holy Spirit himself. And this teaching is simply a reiteration of what Jesus has already told us back at the beginning of John's gospel in chapter 1. Speaking of Jesus, John says, He came to his own and his own people rejected him. They did not receive him. But to all who did receive him. So his people rejected him, but there were some who received him, who believed in his name. He gave them the right to become children of God. They were born... Not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They were born of the Spirit. John is very specific and deliberate to explain to us that the new birth, spiritual life into the family of God, this is not a work of the flesh. It is not the decision of a man and his wife to, to produce a, a Christian child. It does not even come about by the 
the person, the individual's own desires or will. It's a work of God. It's a work which the Holy Spirit accomplishes in the heart of every person who believes. Now, just before we close this morning, there is one more thing that we need to understand. And, and that is the relationship between faith then and this work of the new birth, this work of regeneration. Does faith in Jesus bring about the new birth? Or does the new birth bring about faith in Jesus? Can I ask that again? Does faith in Jesus bring about the new birth? Or does the new birth bring about faith in Jesus? We don't have time to look at, at the many scriptures which speak to this topic. But it is clear from the passages that we've been looking at already today that faith is the fruit of the new birth. It's the very first fruit of the new birth. In other words, the Holy Spirit sovereignly breathes spiritual life into our dead hearts. And this spiritual life causes us to come under the conviction of sin, causes us to, to see our own sinfulness. This spiritual life that has been breathed into us causes us to see for the first time the reality of, of who Jesus is and, and what he has done for us and, and the good news of the gospel. And the very first fruit of this new spiritual life in our hearts is to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for our salvation. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this faith is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. And again, this is totally in line with the Old Testament, which Jesus expected Nicodemus to know and understand and which he wants us to understand today. And so listen carefully again this morning as we close or bring it to a conclusion from Ezekiel chapter 36. God says, I will take you from the nations where they were scattered in exile. I will take you and gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, says God. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And then listen here and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The very first act of obedience in the Christian life is the obedience to believe on Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Faith is the response to obey the call of the gospel, to put our trust in Jesus Christ and to believe all that he has revealed to us. Where does that faith come from? 
what takes a person that was dead in sin and hardened in their rejection and rebellion against God and, and blinded to all the spiritual truths and realities? What takes that person and suddenly causes them to see the kingdom of God, causes them to, to turn their back on their sinfulness and to repent and to put their faith in Jesus Christ? Is it powerful preaching? Is it a great worship experience with, with soft music and dimmed lights? Is it perhaps a, a near-death experience? Absolutely not. It is the result of the mighty rushing wind of the Holy Spirit, blowing where He pleases, breathing new life into a dead soul, convicting of sin and righteousness and judgment and calling dead bones in a dry valley to come alive. Ezekiel 37. And so as I close this morning, if you are a believer today, this doctrine of the Holy Spirit in our salvation should give you great cause to rejoice in God. And so I want to conclude today with, with four practical reasons from John Piper. We've been listening to John Piper over the last two weeks in our daily devotions. And he's actually been touching from 1 Peter chapter 1 on a number of the truths that we've looked at this morning. But I want to share with you what, what John Piper says as to why he rejoices in this sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. Rather than grumbling, he says, we should be rejoicing. Number one, it gives all glory to God and keeps me humble before him. It prevents me from robbing God of, of any of his majesty by crediting myself with something which he alone has achieved. That's the first reason for joy. The second reason, he says, is I love the doctrine of the Spirit's sovereign freedom in regeneration because it enables me to pray for the lost who are dead in trespasses and sins. I do not know what I could ask God to do for a hard-hearted, resistant neighbor or loved one if I didn't believe in the doctrine of irresistible grace. Any prayer I can think of sounds like a joke. Dear God, provide my neighbor with some allurement to believe, but don't make it so strong that it's irresistible. Work in his heart, but not so thoroughly that he feels an overwhelming urge to believe. Oh no, says Piper, I will not pray like that. On the authority of God's word, I pray, Lord God, overcome his resistance. Take out his flesh, that heart of stone, and give him a new heart of flesh, and placard your love irresistibly before his face, and open the eyes of his heart so that he cannot help but believe for joy. Don't keep your distance, Lord. Ravish him with your glory. When last have you prayed for an unbeliever like that? I love this doctrine, he says, because I cannot pray for the lost without it. Thirdly, I cherish the doctrine of the Spirit's sovereignty, he says, because it gives me the encouragement I need to witness to unbelievers. What could be more encouraging in our daily witness, especially among people who seem hard, 
than the confidence that nothing can stop the Holy Spirit from making a new creature out of anybody he pleases. And so I will evangelize and I will pray. And then finally, I love this doctrine because it gives to you who are not yet born again, strong encouragement to close in with Christ today. You do not need any other witness of the Spirit's work within you than the desire you feel right now to come to God. If there is one spark of longing in you to trust trust in Christ, it is of God, he says. And you may take heart that he is at work in you to draw you to the Son. He has not left you to yourself, praise God. So go forward with him. Confirm his work by your faith. Make your calling and election sure. Cleave to Jesus. And he will never let you go. Ah, Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we just want to thank and praise you today for your great plan of salvation. Lord, there are parts of this truth today that have humbled us to the ground if we thought that in any way we could contribute anything to our salvation. Oh, but there is so much joy and encouragement in you today, Lord, to know that not only have you granted to Jesus those whom he will save and will raise up on the last day, but you have promised to draw those to yourself And you do that by breathing out the power of your Holy Spirit upon us to make us alive and to draw us to Jesus. And so we want to thank you today, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for your wonderful salvation that you have accomplished from first to last. That you have made us alive. That you have washed us from the guilt of our sin. That you have given us your Holy Spirit to make us alive and to grant us the gift of repentance and faith. So that we would turn to Jesus and him alone for salvation. Lord help us who are your people today to find great joy, great encouragement and perseverance in our work of of evangelizing those around us who are currently still lost. And Lord, may those today who are hearing this message of salvation in Jesus Christ, who are feeling the conviction of sin, who are wrestling with you, may they close with Jesus today. May they run to you in repentance and faith. May they experience this new birth by your Holy Spirit. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.